Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and before we get to today's episode, I have to issue an apology. I had the wrong microphone input selected for this episode, and unfortunately, two different episodes, and the audio is not as good as it normally is. And so for the first time ever, my guest's audio is probably a lot better than mine. Um, maybe not the first time ever, but, uh, I have to apologize because we, we really value high quality and our audio editor is just simply amazing. But this time you're going to have to suffer through just a little bit lesser quality, maybe a lot lesser quality, depending on your preferences and how picky you might be about your audio. Uh, so anyway, enjoy the episode. These conversations are really, really important and I hope you enjoy the episode. I have uh, an exciting guest on. He was with us about 100 episodes ago. Richard Beck is one of the, man, he's one of the most interesting people I love to hear from and talk to, and I'm so glad to have him back on. Richard is a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University, and he's the author of Reviving Old Scratch and Stranger God. He blogs at Experimental Theology, and he leads a Bible study each week for inmates at a maximum security prison. Richard, thanks for joining us again. It is so good to be back with you. Thanks. So, you know, I wouldn't have expected you to write a book about Johnny Cash because a lot of the things that you write about, if if all I did were to look at your Amazon page prior to this this book, you'd think, oh, well, you know, he's into psychology and he's into theology. And then all of a sudden there's this thing about Johnny Cash. And I just, you know, we'll get to this about midway through the episode. I just thought, Hey, I want to talk to Richard about this book. And then I didn't realize that, that we, we can actually talk about politics <laughs> a little bit because it's Johnny Cash is not dissevered from the political discussion of his, his era. But how did you get into Johnny Cash? Is, was he someone you grew up with? Was it, you know, like me, I kind of got into Johnny Cash through a movie. And I'll just kind of let you start off with that. Oh, yeah. It is an unlikely book for me to write because I'm a psychologist who dabbles in theology and I'm now writing a biography almost about a country music icon. So, yeah, it was a weird journey. No, I was like you. I was a new new fan to Johnny Cash a few years ago. I knew a little bit like kind of most people have heard I Walk the Line or Ring of Fire. Watch the movie. I Walk the Line. That's about all I knew about Johnny Cash. But as you mentioned in your intro, I teach a Bible study out at a maximum security prison. And a couple of years ago, I just bought kind of on a whim uh, the Johnny Cash album at Folsom Prison, the live prison concert he recorded in 68. And just thought it would be a good thing to listen to on the drive out to the prison. And just listening to the album and then experiencing what I was experiencing inside the prison, I don't know, it just kind of captivated my imagination, made me want to listen to more of his music. I bought his follow-up album live at San Quentin Prison and read a few biographies about him and then just saw a lot in his music and in his own life uh, struggles, mainly uh, about of addiction, that I just thought, saw a lot of gospel themes that really resonated with me and the, the way I saw the gospel that made me think about writing a book using his life and music as a lens upon kind of some theological themes I was really interested in. 
So your son is actually sort of the person who named the book, sort of, right? Yeah. So during the season where I'm kind of immersing myself in Johnny Cash's life in music, anytime we got in the car, you know, I had Johnny Cash on. So I was driving my son Aiden to school one day. We're listening to Johnny Cash once more. And Aiden said, yeah, dad, Johnny Cash sings about three things, trains, Jesus and murder. And I thought that was a great line. And I said, you know, son, that'd make a great title for a book. And it ended up becoming the title for the book. <laughs> had you already planned to write the book at that point? I think I had been. Yeah, I yeah, think okay. I was I was under contract and it, I was really do, doing a deep dive into Johnny Cash at that time. So I was on the hunt for a good book title. Yeah. So uh, before before I forget, while I'm thinking about asking you, like what books would you recommend if somebody wanted just a, kind of a pure biography? I mean, obviously, yours is thematic in a number of ways and selective because it's it's not, you know, 800 pages long. Where would somebody who wants to read more about the life of Johnny Cash? Was there a, a quintessential work that people every, everyone should read? Yeah. Uh, Robert Hilburn's biography of Cash that came out a couple of years ago. I think it's just called Cash is uh, the place to start, just really kind of the most authoritative biography about him. Cash had written a number of autobiographies that are worth reading as well. But as far as a straight up biography, Robert Hilburn is the place to go. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, train, trains Jesus and murder. So I mean, clearly Jesus and murder, I mean, uh, you can be creative with certain titles, but that doesn't usually evoke a subtitle. It says the gospel according to Johnny Cash. So I didn't realize Johnny Cash was a Christ follower until I, it might've been like a blog post that you had written. And I was like, oh, really? And, you know, a lot of these country singers and even early rock and roll, I mean, I think it was even Elvis who, you know, sang gospel songs because those were pretty popular and people in that day liked to hear them. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to sing a gospel song and make it popular. But Johnny Cash was not the first person I thought of. And I thought, oh, gospel according to like gospel singer. I thought he was a country singer and, you know, talking about trains and murder. Where does the Jesus part come in for Johnny Cash? Well, he started his career wanting to be a gospel singer. I tell that story in the book. and We don't need to get into it right now. But his older brother, Jack, died when he was 15 and Jack was going to go into the ministry. And so early in his life, when he was a teenager, Cash had kind of made a promise to Jack that he would proclaim the gospel by singing gospel music his whole life. And so Cash recorded gospel music, entire gospel albums throughout his career. He even did a feature length film about the life of Jesus on location in Israel, where he kind of narrated the gospel story and sang gospel songs all the way throughout it. So gospel music was a part of his whole career. What fascinated me about the gospel music was the way in the very same concert he would sing these murder ballads, like Folsom Prison Blues is a classic example of that. There's this line in Folsom Prison Blues where it says, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And then he would, in the same concert, sing gospel music. And then there's also the juxtaposition of him singing gospel music inside prisons, these live prison concerts. And so that's kind of the juxtaposition that I found so fascinating about him was that he wasn't creating this kind of quarantine between the light and the darkness. And I think that's a temptation a lot in Christian circles is here are the saints over here and then there's the sinners, you know, over there on the other side of the railroad tracks. But Cash was a kind of person through his music and, and kind of where he played his concerts was a guy who looked for the gospel in really dark places and found God in really dark places. 
And I think there's a truthfulness in that juxtaposition, the way the light and the dark are mixed together in really complicated ways in our lives, but also out in the real world, where it's not so easy to locate kind of exactly where God is. And so my my experience at the prison is a good demonstration of that, where I go out to this maximum security prison and do a Bible study with murderers, basically. And yet that's where I, I find myself feeling closest to God in that space than I do in kind of a middle class suburban church service on a Sunday morning. Um, so Jesus among the murderers. Yeah, there's something about being in a particular location that. I mean, Jesus even talked about this in Matthew, you know, like if you, you do this unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And it's not, it's not like you're necessarily, I mean, you are acting as in, in Christ, but it's also that like you're serving Christ too. Like there's that double-sidedness to the nature of being among those who are murderers, outcasts, the marginalized, et cetera. Oh yeah. And I think most people can, speak to that truth in their own lives, that they they have experienced God or encounter God and really unlikely people and places. Grace surprises us in the darkness many, many times. And so that's kind of the theme, the complexity of all that is what I'm trying to wrestle with using Johnny Cash as a lens. Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the songs, I mean, you kind of most of your chapters, if not all of them, are some of the song titles, like a selection of things from the from many of his popular songs. And one of them is the man in black, which has to do with solidarity. And you made an interesting point about solidarity is not the same as salvation. And why is that something you needed to even point out? I mean, clearly it's not the same, but why is that something that you had to sort of spell out for readers? Well, I think when you think about Johnny Cash singing for people who are on the margins, and I, and I use that theme of solidarity a lot in the book um, about how in this song, The Man in Black, he, he talks about how he sings for the poor and the beaten down, living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. And I think when Christians hear that, they go, yeah, that's what we do. Like we, we, we try to do all these programs and these ministries to help people on the margins, the downcast, the, the, the downtrodden. But there can be kind of a messiah complex, a hero complex that goes around with a lot of those efforts where we are the people who are rescuing and saving you know, these people who are in great need. And and the, the thing I dwell upon is how that is a kind of a safe place to be. It is not a reciprocal relationship there. It's one-sided. It's, it's benevolence. It's charity. And solidarity, as I kind of unpack it in the book, when you're standing with people on the margins and you're not doing for them, but you're being with them and you open yourself up to a real transactional relationship, that there is a, there is a risk there. Relationships can get messy. They can get murky. They can get hard. And I think a lot of us just don't want to just don't want to invest or sacrifice that much to be that vulnerable in these relationships. So it's just much easier to show up on a weekend and do a benevolence project for somebody in need and then kind of go back to your regular life. That's kind of very mm-hmm. sanitary and clean and schedulable. But again, it can also be really dehumanizing. There's been lots of reflection uh, in in Christian circles about poverty tourism and when helping hurts and lots of other things where that kind of one-sided benevolence can be kind of problematic in ways. It might not be very helpful and it can also be really dehumanizing to people. And so, yeah, the book is trying to to explore a, a different way of going about all of that. And it's emphasizing relationship over benevolence. So- you know, just a little bit of an aside here. Do you, you going to prison every Monday to minister to people is 
there's literally a boundary between you and the people that you serve. Whereas if you're doing like soup kitchen stuff, I mean, it's in, in your local community, not like you drive into the city kind of stuff, but um, there is a risk that if you are in a community where you're serving people, that they're going to show up on your doorstep, that they're going to, you know, when they're in, when they're cold and in, you know, in need, there's far fewer boundaries going on there. So there is a, I want to say a one way direction for the prison. I mean, have you, I wouldn't call it poverty tourism or, or prison tourism by any means, but do you have any thoughts on the actual boundary that it has for you? No, I think that's a good, that's a good observation. In fact, uh, after my first couple of years of kind of spending time out in the prison, I, I forget what the context was, but I was maybe feeling a little bit of self-righteousness that, you know, that I was out there doing this kind of hardcore prison ministry. And my wife, Jana made a joke. She goes, you know, you're patting yourself on the back for being out there, but you know, those guys can't follow you home at night. Hmm. And, uh, it's to your point, right. That it is kind of, uh, you know, they are incarcerated so I can leave and have my life. So I did feel convicted about that and soon added another social location where I spend a lot of time. So I became a member of a little mission church called Freedom Fellowship, where I, we, we will walk, serve a meal to the community, have a worship service, but it's there where I share life with people on the socioeconomic margins of my town. Lots of homeless people, people on parole, a lot of people struggling with addiction. And you're right, life at Freedom Fellowship is a lot more complicated and messy than out at the prison. And so, yeah, I, I've, I've added that piece to it because I, I really did feel like I needed to be in a, in a space where real relationships could occur, not just me going out to the prison for two hours and leaving. Mm-hmm. Although over time, the other thing I would say about the prison ministry is, is, is that, you know, a lot of those relationships strengthen over the years, that there's a fidelity to showing up out there every week. I've been doing it for eight years now. And even though it's only for two hours and once a week, that if you spend eight years consistently uh, walking alongside people every week, you know, that, that life can be shared uh, even across that incarcerated free world boundary. Yeah. Uh, just so I can visualize, you know, how many people are there when you show up on Mondays? There's about 50. Okay. So it's a, it's a big group and um, that's, that's good, but it's also hard because mm-hmm. it's hard to be on a first name basis and yeah. intimately, no 50 individuals. That said, not everybody there at the study is, I would say, like in a seeking kind of mode. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's not a lot going on at the prison. And so it's kind of a one room schoolhouse, spiritually speaking. I'd say about a third of the guys in there are like committed followers of Jesus, struggling as we all do, but, but trying. And I'm closest with them. There's about another third that I think is curious. They're, They're interested in Christianity and following Jesus, but it's just the commitment to do that in a prison context is really difficult. The sacrifices mm-hmm. they would have to make, mm-hmm. but I think they, I think they want it. They might not be able to take that step, but they want it. And then I'd say there's about a third that are just there for the air conditioning, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause it's the Texas prisons aren't air conditioned, but the chapel is. And so, you know, they come and it's just a comfortable place to be. It's cooler it's relaxed because the guards don't run it. You know, it's run by volunteers. And so it's just a kind of a humane space. And I talk to that group. I say, hey, I know some of you guys are here just for the air conditioning and for a comfortable chair and just to kind of relax for a little bit. And I just want you to know in the name of Jesus, that's why we're here to just give you that Sabbath. And I'm glad you're here mm, and you're yeah. welcome. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like a, a 21st century. I mean, I know the air conditioning has been in the 20th century, but it's like 21st century. You gave me food. <laughs> you gave me air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's in the exactly name of right. Jesus, that's good. So you know, one of the one of the attractions for listeners of Johnny Cash was that he had these prison songs. I mean, why why are those songs so popular? And maybe not even popular, just like. They're, they're compelling to listen to, even if you're like, oh my goodness, that I've never listened to that with my kids or, or whatever. You know, there's just something about them that you you want to listen to it. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll vary depending on the listener, but I, I dwell upon this a little bit in the book. And, and Cash himself was trying to reflect on why he thought prison songs were so popular. And what he thought was that all of us are in one sort of prison or another, that we, we all feel somehow cut off from other people. And sometimes it's uh, legally, obviously, physical incarceration. But a lot of us feel alienated from uh, life, from people, from coworkers, from friends, from family. Even in our own families, we feel alienation. And so there is something about that sense of alienation and being separated or cut off from other people where we see their lives carrying on um, and we feel uh, distant from that for some reason. That's kind of the ache of Folsom Prison Blues. There's the singers inside listening to a train passing by, and he imagines the train full of happy people off to happy places. And I think, you know, isn't that the feeling of social media? Mm. <laughs> I was reading, an, I was, I was reading an essay on Insta about Instagram, and the author of the essay was talking about how Instagram has ruined our lives because of this very thing. We see just a scroll, scrolling through screen after screen of people's very best, happiest moments. And there's a part of us that envies that or feels disconnected or alienated and we compare our lives and they seem lacking in comparison. So I think there's something about that alienation yeah, yeah. disconnect that we all experience every day of our lives that that resonates. The prison is like a perfect kind of metaphor or visualization of that emotional ache. Yeah. You know, that reminds me, you know, I've seen these articles about people who either famous people or just, you know, friends of friends of friends. So-and-so, you know, commits suicide and they look through the social media feed and everything looks normal. Everything looks happy. And yet they were in a prison. Yeah. Yeah. So what, one of the most popular songs of Johnny Cash was I Walk the Line. And that it seems to be a constant like theme throughout his life. Can you talk a little bit more about that? This is probably one of his most popular songs. So, you know, it's it's kind of only fitting for us to discuss it a little bit because it has to do with God's faithfulness as well. Yeah, there's kind of like two interesting reversals I make in the book. Um, so the, the original story of the song, obviously, was he wrote it early in his first marriage to Vivian. Um, he later was married to June Carter Cash after he and Vivian divorced later on, which is kind of relevant to the story here. But he was he began early touring and he was out on tours with like Elvis. And so Vivian saw how the girls were responding to her husband and expressed some concerns about Cash's marital fidelity. And so he wrote, I walk the line as this kind of ode to fidelity and faithfulness. I'm going to walk the line for you. But late in his life, Cash also revealed to Robert Hilburn in, in the biography I'd mentioned earlier how the song had a double meaning. And he also wrote it as a pledge of fidelity to God. So Cash late in his life said, I Walk the Line was his first gospel song. And so that's kind of the first interesting twist, how the gospel shows up in a song like I Walk the Line. It's a crypto spiritual song. Mm -hmm. 
But the final twist I make in the book is that Cash broke his promises. He broke his promises to Vivian. He wasn't faithful to her. And as his life spiraled out of control with his drug addiction, he broke his promises to God. And so in many ways, the song is really sad because Cash couldn't walk the line. So I use that to tell the story of how Cash, uh, in the depth of his depression, in the midst of kind of suicidal thoughts, had an experience of God. He had, he had gone to Nickajack Cave to kill himself. He was going to wander off in this cave system, um, get so lost inside the cave he couldn't find his way back out again. So he wanders off in this cave and he lies down in the darkness just wanting to die. And God comes to him. He has a religious experience inside the darkness of that cave. And that becomes an important turning point in his life to kind of walk back to sobriety and walk back into the light again. And so the gospel, according to Johnny Cash in a song like I Walk the Line, is that we really can't walk the line. That if our relationship with God is dependent upon our ability to keep our promises to each other and to God, then then that's going to be a really fragile business. But it's God's fidelity, God's faithfulness to us, God walking the line for us where Cash experienced the gospel and where we all experience the gospel. Did Cash ever articulate it in that way? Yeah, in many different ways throughout all sorts of interviews. I don't know if he ever said God walks, literally God walks the yeah, line for right. me, but but God, he constantly gave testimonials about how God had rescued him and how he had wandered off, but God had always remained faithful to him. And so whether or not he used the exact connection I make, uh, he, he gave that testimony multiple times about God's fidelity uh, in spite of his, his, that is Cash's own infidelity. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of thinking maybe we might have listeners or just someone like looking at the cover of your book and being like, gospel according to Johnny Cash. Like if they're even mildly familiar with things, they're thinking, why would I want to listen to this adulterer drug addict? You know, like, what do you mean the gospel according to? You know, and, and in a way, this book is like the gospel according to Richard Beck via Johnny Cash, you know, in a, in a sense, because obviously you're interpreting things. And those of us who I've I've probably never read an interview or watched an interview or, or I've never read I haven't read the biography of Johnny Cash. I just know him from his songs. And, you know, his songs are, you know, they're dark. You know, as we've talked about, they can be dark and um, full of cussing. But. Yet there's still something appealing about how how his life shows the gospel in a way. And so, I mean, have you had people say, like, why would I ever want to care what Johnny Cash says about God? I think people that kind of predominantly understand him through kind of an outlaw image, when they hear the man in black and they, mm -hmm. they think of the dark songs, they think of him as kind of part of that outlaw music. And so I think for those kinds of fans to be like, yeah, where, where am I going to find the gospel um, in this outlaw image? I think a closer read, people that know his music and his life a little bit more closely realize that he was singing gospel music his entire career. It was His, his music was a little bit more complex than just songs about darkness and murder and cussing. But, uh, I think the biggest pushback that I've gotten is not necessarily where can you find gospel music in Johnny Cash because he was a confessing Christian and he sang gospel music was how can you find the gospel in somebody who's a commercial artist? Mm. That's kind of where I've got some pushback is like, how, can you find the gospel in somebody who's trying to sell you something, you know, sell their music? And uh, that's more what I've heard pushback. Like how, how could you, uh, the, co the commodification of it. Yeah. 
being being problematic. Well, we have that we have that problem pretty recent in in 2019 here with Kanye West confessing faith, and you know it's very early on right now in that transition, and so I, I, it's probably front of mind for a lot of people in that way. It's like, well, what's going on here? Oh yeah, and, and but it's not but it's not just artists. I mean, I think every pastor has that problem where you you are trying to create something that would attract people in, in a we often in the religious marketplace. Right, people have lots of choices um, to where to go to church on a Sunday morning, and so there's a lot of push to have a, a very attractive kind of worship package or mm. have a charismatic speaker on the stage. And and, and we realize that we kind of need to do that because how are you going to get people to come? We need to attract them, but we also realize that if we're just attracting them, that the gospel is going to default to whatever is culturally hip or cool or. You know, like, like we realize that there's the gospel isn't just attractive, that there's a hard sacrificial aspect, right? The cross itself is not a very attractive image. And, and like for you with your podcast, right? I mean, and, and me with my writing, I want people to buy my book, but I also want to say something truthful. And sometimes what is truthful um, and hard to hear, you know, has a cost to it. I, people might not want to read the book. Or they might mm-hmm. want to tune under my podcast or they might not want to show up at my worship service or for cash, they might not want to buy my record. So I do think all of us are walking this a narrow path between trying to get a platform for a message, but also trying to be authentic and truthful at the same time. And that can be a very difficult balancing act. Yeah. yeah and I thought when I was kind of coming of age as a young adult, I, I often was like, well, I grew up with the gospel and it wasn't offensive to me and it wasn't, you know, it was life giving to me. I don't, I don't know why we can't make the gospel. Why isn't the gospel attractive to, to those on the outside world? Because there's, you know, it's a lot of hostility to, to Christians. And, you know, you're right. There's that, there is that tension between this, this is life giving and therefore it shouldn't be problematic to talk about or to explain. Um, and yet, and yet somehow it is. And, you know, we want to dress it up as much as we can to an extent, and that can be idolatrous. So, yeah, you're right. There's just that that fine line in between. You know, you, you talk about just a moment ago, you were talking about how, you know, we want to, there, there's this attractiveness to, you know, what a pastor might do or this worship package. And there is, you know, this this week, the uh, last few weeks, I've you know, been reading your book, and I'm in church and I'm worshiping. And you made this comment in, in your book about really liking hymns, gospel hymns, and the kind of thing that Johnny Cash would sing, because, you know, that's what he would have grown up with. And you and I are very much alike in this way. I grew up, uh, you grew up, or you attend uh, Churches of Christ, which is uh, uh, instrument free. And I grew up with, um, it might as well have been instrument free. We had a single piano in a small room. And whenever I hear the hymns of my youth, at my current church, which is lots of instruments, I find that to be a more worshipful experience. And there is this absence in worship songs that in modern worship songs that lack one major thing. And you bring this out a little bit in the book. You didn't, you didn't like lead into it the way I just did, but you do talk about it and that's lament. Uh And you write about this on your blog as well. Um, And that this is a major missing component to church worship, to church, just discipleship. I would love to hear some more thoughts from you on that. Well, I mean, if you look at the the song book of the Bible, if you look at the Psalms, most Psalms are lament Psalms, that they are worship songs that are speaking to the dislocation between what God has promised and what we're experiencing. And so there's 
lots of questions like, where are you? Um, why, why does the world seem so morally upside down? Why are the, the wicked thriving and the innocent people suffering? And that, that, that question is, is raised up to God. And so you're right. A lot of our contemporary music uh, doesn't sound very biblical in, in the sense that it is emphasizing praise um, with very maybe we'll dabble in lament a little bit, but if you look at the biblical songbook, the Psalms, it was mostly psalms, psalms of uh, pleading. So yeah, and I and I think the trouble with the fact that we we sing predominantly praise songs is that if you don't mix in that darkness, then it can start sounding really inauthentic. And then I also think people can feel alienated in the pews. They come in and they sing these songs that God is good, Jesus is you know on the throne, but they don't feel it. And they definitely don't see it in a world spinning out of control, uh, not just nationally or globally, but just, you know, personally. And they they just I think just drift away. They just realize I can't connect with this. This isn't true or, or authentic. So I think that's that's the other thing that we need to we need to speak truthfully, not about our world and the pain and the dislocation we're experiencing in the world. But we also need to speak truthfully with God. But the other thing is, I think in a lot of our contemporary churches, that kind of honesty towards God sounds unfaithful. I think that's the problem. Mm. If you somehow accuse God of being kind of asleep on the job, that sounds very unfaithful. But again, that's why I think a rich biblical theology of lament can help you and kind of go, no, that's what faithfulness looks like. Um, that's a rugged faithfulness that even in my my pain and my suffering and my confusion, I still am engaging God even there. Yeah. And that is faith, I think, at its best. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the name Israel means wrestles with God. Yeah. Good point. So, I mean, it's clear. It's just like clear as day there if you actually, you know, read some of this, you know, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And it's like, there, there you go. So, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm fully in agreement with you on that. And that's, that's something that, uh, I lament about the, the, the state of modern <laughs> worship. That was an unavoidable pun, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit about politics and, and patriotism. Um, I, I, sure. you know, I'm halfway through your book and I'm like, oh, wow, I was just going to do this as a fun, you know, slightly off topic at our normal assortment of, of episodes. And then I'm like, oh, we get to talk a little bit about patriotism. You know, overall, cash was subversive in in a way, but not in that sort of stereotypical sense, um, at least in the way that I maybe picture rebelliousness and, and stuff. I mean, he had his own way of being subversive to the status quo. He was an American patriot in a way. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll kind of let you elaborate a bit. What what did that look like for him, and where did he take his actions outside of music, and, and even inside of music? Yeah, I think his witness is very his his, his patriotic witness is very uh, complicated. On the one hand, he served in the Air Force and was very proud to be an American. He devoted uh, a lot of his music to singing about America. He sang about great American battles and heroes. He devoted entire albums to singing songs about America. And so his music is very, very patriotic. And yet he also sang a lot of songs about kind of the darker aspects of the American dream. Like, for example, in the 60s, he recorded an album called Bitter Tears, which is a whole album devoted to the plight of Native Americans in America. And in that album is very critical of, of aspects of American history, 
Um, and it actually was so controversial, it didn't get a lot of airplay. He ended up having to take out uh, an ad in Billboard magazine calling out radio managers and DJs for lacking the moral courage to play bitter tears on the airways. And so, so he's patriotic, but he's also willing to sing about people the American dream has left behind. Your listeners might be really interested in a Netflix documentary about Johnny Cash and an invitation Richard Nixon extended to him to sing music uh, in the Nixon White House. And so Cash was going to go because, again, very patriotic and he was, you know, wanting to honor the office of the president. But the president's people wanted him to sing some songs that were kind of controversial, kind of took some shots at the counterculture and um, uh, people on welfare. And Cash refused to sing those songs and instead went into the White House and sang songs um, that kind of stood more in solidarity with the anti-Vietnam movement at the time. And so, again, that's complicated. He goes – he takes some knocks for going to the Nixon White House and performing uh, from people on his left. But he also took some hits from people on his right because when he does go into the White House and sing those songs, he he sings some songs that were pushing back on some of the Nixon policies. And so I, I – Look at that whole witness there and, and and see the gospel as a part of that witness that that in one sense we can be proud of our countries, but we also have to have a critical prophetic aspect as well. And so we, we're patriotic, but it's a restless, uneasy patriotism. Yeah, well, I think I think a lot of our listeners can resonate with that because there's there is that tension between, you know, loving your country and then that, that phrase can mean certain things. And my dad is a very very big patriot in like he loves his country and he also is very big on like he loves his family but you know anybody who loves their family like their family name like their extended family and all of that whenever you violate the legacy of the family it's okay and it's still pro family to call that out and i think that's one way that we can look at patriotism it's like you know what you can be pro america and call out america for its sins <laughs> because that's still being pro american yeah but i think we're losing that capacity i think i think uh, american christianity is losing that prophetic capacity because it's almost getting to the point now if you level a criticism against america um that is being unpatriotic yeah it's very similar to what we just talked about with lament that if you express any complaint toward God, that's an act of unfaithfulness towards God. So don't lament. Be totally positive 100% of the time. But it's getting to the point in American Christianity, if you lever- leverage any criticism against America, if you question its history, if you question its policies, if you, you know, that that is taken, the criticism is taken as evidence of being unpatriotic. And I think that's a dangerous place to go. If, if you cannot yeah. raise a critical a critical question about uh, America uh, without being accused of being you know, unpatriotic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think I think that becomes really dangerous for the church. So you're, you're a psychologist. Why is that so hard? Because it doesn't seem to me that, that criticism automatically means anti whatever you're criticizing. Like, can it not like it's it's like it's like parenting, like just telling your kid that they're misbehaving doesn't mean you're anti child. Well, I think the reason for that. Well, there's a lot of deep reasons. It's like a whole other podcast. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, give I'll, me some brief I'll, thoughts. I mean, I'll quickly say that a lot of times, a lot of this criticism has been um, made increasingly partisan. So it's hard to level a criticism out without that 
somehow marking you as a part of one on one team or on the other team. And so that that's wrapped up in this is that if you leverage that criticism, then that puts you on one side of the political aisle and then the, the label unpatriotic can be thrown at you to yeah. dismiss to dismiss the criticism. So I do think that the label of being unpatriotic, you know, or not supporting the troops can be a way to completely dismiss an opinion. Yeah. And so we've weaponized patriotism for our own political gain and our own political purposes. So I think that's a big part of what's also going on now as well. Yeah, no, that's that's certainly troubling in a lot of ways. Are there themes that you wish you were able to cover in the book that you're, you know, your publisher or just based on self-limitation, you're just like, I, I, I don't have time or space to cover these things? I think I think a chapter I wish I, I would have chased perhaps would be more about Cash's relationship with his father. Mm. Um, it, it wasn't anything that I felt like the publisher said I couldn't do. It just I just didn't dig into it and kind of look back at it because one of the things that came out of his brother Jack's death when they were children, and this comes out really clearly in the movie made about Cash's life, I Walk the Line, was the troubled relationship he had with his father. His father came to blame him for that death, uh, reasonably or not. And I think Cash at one point said he had never heard his dad say that he had loved him. Mm-hmm. And although I talk about that, uh, the pain of his father and the wound of his father and how I think that wound kind of introduced a lot of the darker themes in Cash's life and it was probably implicated with why he ended up becoming uh, an addict, like you know, dealing with the demons and the skeletons in his closet – I think I could have probably spent some time developing a whole chapter on that part of his kind of psychobiography. Uh, but that's one chapter I think I probably should have wrote at some point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've noticed in the past few years, I've read more biographies as sort of out of a commitment to read outside my normal comfort zone. And I have noticed that at least one time per biography that I read, I think about my relationship with my kids a lot and how am I treating them? How am I chastising them and correcting them and sometimes yelling at them for, you know, doing stupid, simple things. Um, and, and I shouldn't be yelling at them. It's like, Oh my goodness. I shouldn't, I could have done that way better. Right. Um, and these biographies, it's just very, uh, enlightening to me because it's like, you get to read stories of real people you get to hear accounts of them. And usually nowadays biographies are not, you know, they're not whitewashing people's lives typically, you know, so, you know, you clearly don't do that for, for Johnny Cash and it, it changes you. So I, I think there's a power in the, in the biography and in that sort of genre, because, you know, there's just this like realism to it. We can see ourselves, right. We can see our sins in other people. And when you're able to do that, we're able to kind of identify what that is for us. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of why I got involved in Johnny Cash, because I had listened to his music and then I read the Hilburn biography. And and then when I heard the music uh, juxtaposed with his life and his story and his struggles, that's where it really came alive for me. Um, yeah. And I think that's the way with all of us is that our stories are just really compelling and and uh, there's nothing quite like them. Yeah. Is your is your family sick of listening to Johnny Cash or were they when you were writing this? They're very kind to me, but I think they're, they, it got a little old. My wife's not a huge fan of Johnny Cash. Okay. Like she's, a, she's a musical theater person. And, and so there's something just kind of overly simplistic and redundant uh-huh. and, and 
his music. Uh, she, you know, huge. His he doesn't have a lot of vocal variety. You know, like you, you think about musical theater. You know, the range of the singers, the high notes they'll hit or whatever. Cash, Cash is not that singer, right? He's he sings kind of like a freight train coming right at you, and it's a boom chicka boom rhythm, and it can be. So the monotony I think drives her a little bit crazy. But she's very she she as she says, I love how much you love him. <laughs> <laughs> so so she she loves my love for him yeah that's good so what what are you annoying your family with now what are upcoming projects uh i don't i don't know i try i try to tread lightly with with my 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 you know interests so i'm writing another book right now but it's not anything that involves kind of an immersion in music so i'm not i'm not audibly interfering uh with my my family's life the way i used to uh, all the time Cool. So um, where can our listeners find more of your writings? You blog pretty consistently for many, many years. And so where, where can they find you? Yeah. I, so I, I blog every day, Monday through Friday at Experimental Theology uh, on Blogspot. And so you can find me there. And obviously, if you go to Amazon, um, my author page, you'll, you'll see the books that I've written. Um, this one obviously being the latest one. Yeah. So you're, you're like you and like five other people on Blogspot. You've survived. It's funny to me is that, you know, when I started my blog back in the golden era, you know, people actually blogged because now podcasts are all the rage. So I have all this envy for you right now. You know, who reads blogs anymore? But I just, I just didn't, I had no ambitions for it and didn't think it would grow. And so I just, you know, that was the thing. And I started, it was free. And I've just stayed there because there's always been something to me to kind of resist branding myself. Mm-hmm. This is probably, this is probably a little bit too much information about my own spiritual journey, but but I never wanted the blog. I still don't want the blog to be kind of a. I didn't want it to take over my life, so I wanted to keep it modest. And and so I've I've resisted, you know, shifting to anything more branded. You know, buying buying my own you know, hosting my own website yeah. or whatever. So I just, yeah, plug away and, and followers have stayed with me over the years and uh, new followers come. And, um, and so it's just a little friendly little spot on the internet where, where we talk every week. Yeah. Well, and I love how it's very eclectic. Um, from day to day, I will read things about your prison ministry to a poem to sometimes rants, sometimes just like reflections on, you know, latest theological trends. Um, I, I really like your eclectic nature and, uh, I, I encourage our listeners to go check out experimental theology on Blogspot. So Richard, thanks for joining me again for this conversation. I love your books and I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.
Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.